Now's a good time to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions. There's a lot of great things about this relationship. Like us, Survivors for Solutions wants to see continued innovation in the pharmaceutical space. They embrace the free market and believe that the free market is the best solution to improve patient lives. It was founded by our close friend CZ or John Swartaki. CZ founded the group when he saw the damage that the Inflation Reduction Act was gonna bring to the pharmaceutical ecosystem. He's been a patient, and Eric, I think you'll talk about that in a minute, but he's been a patient for several decades himself, and he wants solutions not just for himself, but for his family and friends and for Americans in the future. And he knows how important it is for continued pharmaceutical innovation to happen here in the United States, because if it doesn't, it won't happen anywhere. Joe, you're right. CZ is a longtime friend of both of ours and a seasoned Washington pro. But what most people don't know is that John Swartaki has also suffered from multiple sclerosis for over 30 years. He was diagnosed and has required four different breakthrough drugs over the course of this disease in order to just live. All these drugs have been developed in a robust ecosystem of medical discovery and delivery an ecosystem that the Inflation Reduction Act and President Biden now threaten. That threatens the hope and security and safety, the liberty, and ultimately the lives of millions of Americans suffering from chronic, debilitating, or life-threatening disease. He formed Survivors for Solutions to help save this system so others like himself have the chance at a fulfilling and robust life. You can learn more about CZ and his lifelong struggle with multiple sclerosis from our March 27th DC EKG interview, plus his website, survivorsforsolutions.org, or on Twitter at Hope Matters Most. Joe, we're really fortunate. CZ is our leader here at DC EKG, and we look forward to advocating on his behalf and the behalf of millions of American patients in the years to come on our show. Welcome back to DC EKG. This is Joe Grogan, along with Eric Eulen. We're joined this week by Paul Winfrey, an expert on the DC budget process and the formulation of policy on Capitol Hill. It's gonna be a great conversation. Thanks for having me, guys. Paul, thanks for joining us. Paul is a newly minted PhD, long Capitol Hill, private sector, and think tank experience. As Joe said, he knows a lot about the budget, a lot about healthcare, a lot about a lot of different issues. We'll be diving into all those. But Paul, let's start a little bit with your background and the budget here in this segment. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, growing up around Washington, D.C., and what made you decide that public policy, and in particular budget, was something that you really wanted to focus on? That's a, that's a huge existential question, Eric. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> We've got all day, so you can start with the ontology, move to the hermeneutics, yeah. and then with the imminence of the whole question. Sure. Uh, so the reason that I, well, let me go all the way back to the beginning. So as you mentioned, I'm a, I just finished my PhD about, uh, about two weeks ago, and we might talk about that a little bit later, but I started my PhD about 23 years ago. And, uh, I got to the point in the program where you're done with the coursework, 
you are now required to start thinking about what you're going to write your dissertation on. And I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do, right? The research I was doing at the time I thought would make me unemployable. And I still think it would make me unemployable, <laughs> uh, uh, at least maybe to a few like really esoteric economics departments. But anyway, I was talking to my advisor at LSE at the time, and he London recommended School of Economics, right? London School of Economics. That's right. And he recommended that I take a leave of absence and just kind of try to figure out what I wanted to do. And so I applied for a fellowship at the Department of Justice to work in the antitrust division for graduate students. And it was a two-year fellowship. And uh, and that's what I was- and why DOJ? Why antitrust? Um, because uh, it was an available option and I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> I have to be completely honest with you. Yeah. And um, honesty is a virtue. Exa exactly. I mean, it, it, to, to get into the nitty gritty, the guy who was the chief economist at in the in that division at the time had gone to grad school with my advisor. And that's the real reason why I was I was going to go there. And uh, so anyway, uh, I was all set to to take a leave of absence from LSC that summer and start that fall at DOJ in D.C., and I was just telling people that I knew in Washington at the time. And there was a guy uh, who's no longer at Cato. This is not going to surprise you all, uh, people who know the Cato Institute. But I was talking to a guy who I knew at Cato at the time about what I was going to do. And he said, you don't want to work for the federal government. You want to go do something more interesting. And so he plugged me in with a uh, scholar who at the time was at the Heritage Foundation named Stuart Butler, who's now at Brookings. And Stuart had just gotten a big grant to study economic mobility in America. And so I uh, talked to Stuart. Uh, we really hit it off. Stuart said, don't go to the DOJ, come to the Heritage Foundation. You can, you can work on this project with me. But I only intended to stay there for two years. I never, never intended to, to, to for it to last any longer than that. Uh, and uh, and during that time, it took us about two, two and a half years to complete. Um, Stuart, uh, Bill Beach, and I, um, um, and Bill worked on the Senate Budget Committee uh, with with Eric and I a number of years ago. Uh, all co-authored a book on the determinants of economic mobility in America that was ultimately published by the Pew Charitable Trust. And I think that that book came out in 2007 or 2008. And, uh, and I caught the bug. I caught the, I caught the policy bug and, and, uh, and I didn't want to go back into academia. I wanted to stay uh, working on issues that I thought were relevant and important. And, um, and so I got a permanent placement at Heritage within the Center for Data Analysis which at the time was sort of the uh, off the hill conservative congressional budget office. And so you have that opportunity. You've co-written a book, and we want to talk a little bit about the determinants of economic mobility when we have a chance. Sure. But there's this passion, as you said, that's been ignited. Yeah. You you cross from the the think tank world to the public policy world pretty quickly after your book's published. I mean, you're up on the Hill in the next few years and you're bringing your learning and your authorial experience to work trying to pull together 
and ultimately drive policies from a very exotic perch, as you mentioned earlier, the, the Senate Budget Committee. Tell us a little bit why that was so important and how that contributed to your first solely authored book on the history of budget here in the United States. Sure. So I've always, like I said, I've always been drawn to the practi practicality, but I've also always been comfortable in academic theory too. And that usually brings me to big problems, right? I'm, I'm attracted to these big, these big issues. And if, if you think about where best to think about or where best to apply, um, you know, both theory and practical ideas within a, you know, practical public policy making world, there really no, there's really no better place to do that on the Hill than the budget committees, because the budget committees are the only committees that look at all of government. Right. And, uh, and so I thought that it was, it ended up being a, a, a really good fit. Um, during my time on the Senate budget committee, you also are sort of enter into a graduate school program on, you know, what, what are, what's ultimately driving the dysfunction of government? Uh, why, you know, you start asking questions like, why does the budget process not function the way that it should? How did we get here in the first place? How has it worked in the past? What might work? How might it work better? Um, and, uh, and as, and as you know, because we experienced this firsthand hand with our, with our time up there, um, you know, you, you, you start, you start asking yourself, well, you know, if I'm ever in a place where I can, you know, start to analyze these ideas a little bit more, maybe I want to dig in, maybe I want to dig into them. And then, so when I left the budget committee and went back to the heritage foundation where I ran their economic policy shop. Uh, I started to do um, a bit of research on the historical origins of the modern congressional budget process, which led to a book that I published just before the pandemic. I had superior timing on this. Uh, <laughs> my my publisher sent me like a hundred copies of the book to take on a tour in December of 2019, and and then and then I, I've been I've been slowly giving them out over time, right. <laughs> um, but. Uh, but um, but but you know I, what I what I tried to do is go all the way back to colonial America and bring us up to current times and say okay how did we get here and ultimately what's changed what are the big themes so, that have driven the yeah, process yeah so what's the key takeaway of how we got here and then you also focus a little bit on the future how do you build your perspective on our experience over the past couple hundred years yeah to inform where it is we're going to go next. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about the U.S. congressional budget process is that it was never intended to be a fixed thing, right? So at the very beginning of our republic, we basically just borrowed from what we already knew, which is what the colonial governments were doing, which was based on what parliament was doing. And then over time, challenges occurred, right? Some of those challenges were... Um, you know, how do you make the U.S. look relevant on an international stage? How do you deal with financing a civil war? Uh, how do you deal with massive trade imbalances? How do you deal with world wars, right? How do you deal with just the just the general demand and growth in government and population? Right. And, and, and how do, do an evolution of things? Yeah. So I got a question because um, I know Ulan's a veteran of the budget committee too and 
puts him also in a uh, tiny priesthood of those who love the arcane world of, uh, you know, the the original Budget Control Act and all this stuff. But let's before we dig into a little bit more about where how we got here, where are we now? Like if you you sit back here and and uh, you know there's 12 people at at the Christmas dinner table and they're like, hey, uh, I'm trying to figure out what's going on in in America's fiscal situation and the budget. Good thing Paul's coming to dinner tonight. Uh, I can ask him. So what do you tell people to the uninitiated about where we are as a country? and as it relates to our budget. I think that the modern congressional budget process that was established 50 years ago next year in the Congressional Budget Act was right for the time in which it was enacted, uh, but not necessarily helpful today. And that's reflected in the breakdown, right? That's, refl- that, that's reflected in the reason that, that members of Congress don't follow, don't follow the process. And so I'm, I'm actually, a li- I have a little bit of a different opinion on this than most budget folks. Most budget folks will tell you that institutions and incentives really matter. And if we just have the right institution and the right incentives, then everything will work perfectly. I think that the institutions and ultimately the incentives that come out of those institutions are, and I'm going to use an economics term, but it are endogenous to the system, right? They're, they're motivated by the culture of Congress. And, you know, sometimes the stars align and the process helps you deal with bigger challenges. And sometimes it just helps you get over whatever you're trying to get over right now. Right. And so the modern congressional budget process isn't the 74 Act. The modern congressional budget process is really what we've seen since the enactment of the Budget Control Act, which is every two years. You have an increase in the debt limit and some negotiation over what the two-year spending agreement will be. And everyone pretty much ignores the long-run drivers of debt because the price of debt has been really, really cheap for the last two decades. So in 2011, you had this change to your point, the Budget Control Act, but we've had low low debt costs for over a generation. Now we see interest rates going up. You focused a little bit on the endogenous factors, kind of where should we go? Outline a little bit of a picture of what you think, given the challenges and uh, the the sort of, to your point, culture that you're dealing with up there. What is it you think that a modern budget process should look like for this period of time? I think that the modern so uh, so if you look at the long run history of the of the budget process in general, one of the things that that is one of the themes that you see reflected is this idea that challenge occurs and the institutions at play, either the executive or the Congress, amends whatever the process is to deal with that challenge. Two things have happened in the last 40 years. The first thing that's happened is that the institutions themselves are are not as um uh, what's the right way to put this? They they there there isn't um they don't care about the institution as much as they as much as they w- once did, right? It, you, it, it, it 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 was once the case that you know members of congress cared about the institution of the legislature. Right. 
now they, they, they don't, they don't so much right now. It's more of an R's versus D's thing, right? That's a big difference today relative to 40 years ago or hundred years ago or, or, or 200 years ago. Um, the other thing that's happened is that you have seen a general breakdown in the ability to innovate based on those challenges. And I think that some of that to get back to this endogenous point is based on the fact that we've just, you know, had such a low price of debt for so long. And as the price of debt goes up and as net interest payments get larger and larger and start to crowd out other things that will, uh, ultimately put pressure on Congress to do something to deal with those challenges. Um, but until that happens, I'm honestly pretty pessimistic that anything will change um, relative to the status quo that, ha- you know, like I said, it was really set about 10 years ago after the enactment of the Budget Control Act. So why why should we care? So Congress doesn't care about protecting the institution. <clears throat> the budget process is is broken or somewhat damaged. It's a little rickety, however you want to phrase it. What does it matter to uh, to the American people or to people who are paying attention that this isn't working well? Well, I think a couple things. I think that one thing that could happen that is a little bit outside of the scope of what we've talked about thus far that could change uh, congressional engagement is that this year there will be a case before the Supreme Court to, to deal with Chevron deference. Uh, it will be decided next year. And if Chevron deference is is modified in some way, then Congress will have to engage, right? They will they'll just have to get more involved with the policymaking process. So so just for those who aren't aware, Chevron deference is basically a rule of constitutional interpretation that's been adopted by the Supreme Court to say, look, where a statute is ambiguous when passed by Congress, agencies have pretty broad discretion, and we're going to give them deference in interpreting that law. And basically, it's come down to, if it's reasonable and rational, we're going to let that interpretation uh, stand, even if it wasn't the intent of Congress or uh, or if it's really damaging to certain industries. Is that fair? That's, that's a, that's a gr- better description than I could have come up with, Joe. <laughs> So, <laughs> so it's funny, it's funny, you know, you said that a, a lot of um, Congress doesn't seem to care about the institution yeah. anymore. Do you think that the rise of Chevron deference is uh, part of the reason for that? They've gotten lazy, yeah. like Nancy Pelosi said, we'll figure out what's in the Affordable Care Act after we pass it. Yeah, I think I, th- I think that that's a I think that that's a, 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 a have, has been a big change. Uh at the same time, like I said, if the if the Supreme Court decision ends up modifying Chevron deference in some way, and it forces Congress to engage a bit more than they once did, then that could get them to rethink all of these things a bit more, right? Yeah. Um, we could. It, the, so the other thing, besides the Chevron deference and sort of those institutional challenges, um, that will I think force Congress to to deal with something more or less, you know, uh, well, it could, let me pause here. You can, you can edit this, you can edit this part out. Um, one of the things that 
could force Congress to come to the table to deal with long-run fiscal challenges sooner than later is the idea that we're actually running out of fiscal capacity. All right. Well, let's hold on. Let's explore that a little bit more after the break. But this is a good, ominous, uh, somewhat ambiguous term to keep people coming back for uh, our next segment after the break. So thanks, Paul. We'll be right back. 